Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Ransomware is on the rise. And if you don't think this can affect you, then you're living in a delusion. I have dealt with more clients in the past eight months dealing with ransomware and cryptoware than I care to to count because it's not a fun problem to deal with. Some of the underlying technologies that we use to resolve the problem and watching the expression on the client's face when we can use ZFS snapshotting, for example, to roll back to any given moment uh, in the past two weeks. Those things are fun, but they're not fun problems to solve because we're not really building anything. We're just tearing down the nonsense that people with too much time on their hands and misguided youth put up. If you're not familiar with what cryptoware is or ransomware, it essentially is software that encrypts your data and uses that encryption key against you as a means of extortion. So they basically say, you've got 24 hours, give us a few thousand dollars and we'll give you the key to decrypt your data. Now, there's two ways that you can go about handling this. The official stance of AltaSpeed Technologies, anytime we're called into a client to discuss that, is don't pay the ransom. And we tell people not to pay the ransom for one reason and one reason only. It tells the attacker that their venture is profitable. And so if we can eliminate people ever paying the ransom, it won't be worth the time of these people to actually write the software or maintain servers or risk getting caught and all those other things because nobody actually pays it. That's answer number one. That's the official answer that we give clients. Here's the unofficial answer that you'll get here on the Ask Noah show. The unofficial answer is, and I will tell the client this if they ask me directly. Well, if they ask me, what would you do if it was your data? Do you want the data back? If the answer is yes, pay them. Pay them. You screwed up. You screwed up in your data backup plan. You screwed up in your data management plan. And now you have to bite the bullet. And part of that is going to be Part of that biting the bullet is the fact that you're going to have to pay somebody for that, for the key for, for your data. Well, there's a new ransomware out and it's called NextCry. NextCry has been found active in the wild and it remains undetected by antivirus engines and other public screening platforms. Now, the important thing about NextCry is you might have picked up by the clever name NextCry. It infects NextCloud servers. And guess what? They run Linux. I have articulated since episode one of this program, and I stand by this, that Linux is a more secure operating system than Microsoft Windows or Mac OS. But I'm also not ignorant. I'm also not blind to the fact that any operating system that executes code can be used maliciously and or negligently. If the only thing that separates good code from bad code is the intent of the author designing it, right? And so we use encryption for good. You can automatically encrypt and file uh, encryption and use files for bad. It doesn't mean that AES is bad. It's great encryption. But this is being used in a negligent way, in a malicious way. 
Now, Nextcry is a Python script compiled by a Linux ELF binary using PyInstaller. The ransomware then uses a base64 algorithm to encode the file names. Now, the interesting aspect about this, it uses AES-256 to encrypt the files. And then the key is encrypted with RSA-2048, and the public key is embedded inside of the code of the ransomware. And so essentially what happens when this code is executed is the ransomware first searches the Nextcloud file share and the sync directory, and then it reads the server's config.php file, and then it deletes the folder that could be used to restore some of the files, and then it encrypts all of the data and gives a message to the user saying, hey, your data is encrypted. If you want it back, pay us. And um, that's bad. And Linux servers are the focus of this threat. Next cloud servers, people like you who host their own files are the target of this threat. We'll go to the phones. There's more to discuss here. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation, we invite you to do so at 855, or uh, yeah, 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Rob from Michigan joins us. Hey, Rob, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, thank you. Been uh, catching up on a lot of your past episodes and have been enjoying it and learning a lot. Thank you. We appreciate it. Uh, so I have uh, two questions. First one is about Microsoft Edge. Uh, I have been using it for a couple specific purposes. Uh, one of them is the text-to-speech that they have is actually really good as an really? feature and it really helps people that are really have issues reading. Uh, and it's been an amazing feature. So what I'm wondering is, do you have any suggestions? I haven't been able to find something that uh, is uh, halfway decent that I could run on Linux or Windows, any platform. A text-to-speech engine. Um, you know, the only one I'm... Yeah, like a screen reader. Yeah, the only one I'm aware of is Orca. Um, and, and so I, I, a good friend of mine is visually impaired. And so he actually relies on Orca in order to simply use his computer. And he tells me that it's sufficient. Unfortunately, I feel kind of out of place answering the question, to be honest with you, because I don't rely on a screen reader for anything. So anytime something's talking to me, I find it to be, uh, you know, an irritation. I'm like, yeah, I don't really want this thing talking. I can just read it myself. So I'm, I'm probably not really qualified, I guess, is the best answer to, to tell you. But what I, what I will tell you is from the people that I do talk to on a regular basis that do rely on screen reading technology, Orca seems to be the one that they gravitate towards. I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Orca is powered by the... Um, no, that's not right. That's that's something else. Uh, yeah, but Orca is the software, I think, that you're looking for if you're looking for a, for a good screen reader. At least that's the best one I'm familiar with. Okay. Well, I will definitely check that out. Uh, okay. The other one, hope, the second question on Edge, hopefully, is a little bit easier. So one of the other things, um, in, in my new position, uh, they've been in my job, they've been using G Suite, and... Moving over to G Suite, I'm not a fan of it, but have to use it. Uh, one of the catches is everything is in a tab in my browser, and it's extremely difficult to adjust to it by workflow. So in Microsoft Edge, you can there's this function where it installs it as an app and basically moves it into a windowed version of the web page that I can treat as an application. Mm -hmm. um, without going into Electron or Simone development myself, is there a simple way to kind of move web pages into more of a windowed app without just having a whole bunch of tabs flying all over the place? Yeah, there is. In fact, there is a uh, there is a web wrapper software that turns any web page into a standalone uh, Linux app. 
Um, I can't think of what the name of off, is off the top of my head, but I will find it for you. You are correct in saying, though, that um, to wrap a website into an Electron app does not take a huge feat of coding. It's, it's probably just a couple of lines of code to make that happen, and that's also something that would be fairly straightforward and very easily deployable and updatable. So it, I wouldn't rule it out per se, but there was an app that I had found a while back that that's literally what the application did was you install the application, you give it a link and it generated a new icon that ran that web page as a windowed uh, web wrapped application. And I, I'll, I'll try, I'll dig it up for you. I don't have it off the top of my head, but I'll find it and throw it in the show notes at podcast.snowashow.com. Okay. That would be perfect. Um, the last thing, I was listening to an older episode, and you had a guy who was talking about doing some volunteer services. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked a little bit, and I, I, I figured I'd just save it for this week and give you a call. So I've been doing IT solutioning and engineering and sysadmin, all this type of stuff, for close to 20 years now. And sure. I'd like to find out if there's a good way to connect with nonprofits or schools or other places like that that would that can't afford these types of services but could benefit from them. I've tried contacting, like, local school here and there, and most of them already have somebody who don't really want to be going, you know, virtually, you know, door-to-door asking and whatever, but you know of anything like that? Or? Yeah, there's there's a couple different ways to do it. So the first thing you need to do is define a system for yourself. I, I, I This bit me a while back. I got to I was at, I was at a point where every time I'd get on an airplane – or every time I would be in an airport or if I was in a, you know, a, a, a public space of any sort, somebody would walk up to me and say either, hey, I heard your radio show and I really like it and I had a couple questions for you if you have some time, or, hey, I heard you're the guy that works on this thing or whatever and, you know, could you help me with this, that, or the other. And what I found myself doing frequently was telling these people, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. Just uh, just give me a call, shoot me an email, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take care of that for you for free. And I, I mean, if you've listened to this program for any length of time, you've heard me do that on the air, right? So we can't figure it out in a five-minute radio call. I just set up a service call with uh, one of our technicians, and I do it. The problem is my accountants hate that, right? Because they get down to the end of the month, and they go, why did we do X amount of tens of hours of work, and we didn't even bill for it? And I say, well, I, you know, this nice guy I ran into in the airport, or this nice woman I met at the restaurant, and she needed some help, and so I, you know, whatever. Um, and so to kind of control that and to manage that from a business aspect, what we've done is we just printed out little cards, little coupon cards that basically says the front of the card says we'll fix that for free. And on the back, it says that this card is good for two hours of, uh, of, of service equivalent service calls. And so essentially what that means is, you know, if I get if I want to fix something for free or I want one of our techs in my case, because I don't do a lot of the fixing anymore. But if I want that state process to occur and I'm willing to absorb the cost of that, then I'll hand out those cards. In your particular scenario, the reason that I say it's important is because you want to differentiate yourself when you're doing a business for two things. First of all, you don't want to undersell your own services. And so if you go and offer your services for free, it tends to have the effect, whether it's intended or not, to devalue your service, right? Those are the guys that charge 150 an hour and they do a really good job. And that's the guy that comes and volunteers for free because he's trying to break into the market. And you don't want to set yourself up. You don't want to frame your, your services in that light. And so the way I would suggest going about yeah, doing it. I'm not. Mm-hmm. It's not from a business standpoint. I'm not trying to start my own business. I have a full-time job. I'm very happy with it. I oh. just wanted to try and help and, oh, back and okay. find a place where I can connect and do that. Okay. Okay. So this is nothing to, it has nothing to do with money. This is a hobby for you. Basically, it's, I know that there's a lot of nonprofits and mm-hmm. schools and stuff like that that mm-hmm. struggle with this. They don't have a lot of money to work with. Gotcha. The service gotcha. I, the services I do are expensive. 
I'd love gotcha. to try and help some of these places. Yep, that makes perfect sense. Okay, so to more directly answer your question, here's how you get involved with, with or here's how those kinds of organizations decide on who they're going to use for IT and how you would get involved. And the answer to that well, there's two ways you can do it. The first is um, the network model, which is find other people that are in those circles. I had a good friend of mine that he could go into any restaurant or any town and sit down in the coffee shop when within three days he would know who all the players in the cities are and knew who was who and 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 who did what and, and was able to kind of have those discussions. When you when you uh, when you look at you know going out on your own, if you find an organization, and we actually do some work for some nonprofits. And the way that we got connected with them was I, I, I knew that this was a group that we wanted to help. And I knew that they were a nonprofit and didn't have a lot of money. And I just showed up to one of their meetings and said, hey, you know, how do you get how do I get started? How do I get involved with your group? I didn't come in and say, I do IT services. And do you have anybody? And can I make you a better deal or the traditional sales pitch? I just showed up and said, I'd like to get involved in your group. How can I help? And so for the first couple of months, what that looked like was answering some questions. They weren't even technical questions, but helping move some boxes and stuff like that. And I just got involved in those organizations. And within, you know, two, three weeks, they looked over and said, well, what do you do for a living? I said, I own an IT company. And they went, oh, really? We have so-and-so that we work with at the IT, but if you'd be willing to do it in-house, that would, you know, save us a ton of money. And so that, that was one way that, you know, we kind of transitioned in there. The other thing that you can do is you can go down to places like your uh, your your city resources and uh, you know in, in Grand Forks for example we have North Dakota Job Service and there are uh, that's kind of the city's hub for connecting people who want to do work with people that are looking for work and so often when you have nonprofits that that show up to city council meetings and and so on and so forth they will ask questions like who in town offers discounts for nonprofits? And if your local job service is aware of that and aware of you and aware of the service you offer and say, hey, we actually, there's actually a guy, he's in here every week. He has, here are the services that he provides and he actually does them. He actually looks for, he has a certain amount of hours that he allocates each week to volunteering to an organization. I'd give him a call. That's a way that you do two things. You establish credibility because it's not you selling your own service. It's a third party. That third party doesn't necessarily have to vouch for you. They just have to understand that you're providing a service and that person needs a service and they're able to connect those two dots and you'll get your end result of you'll have some time to be able to volunteer towards that nonprofit. But you're absolutely right. Those organizations have little to no money. They operate on razor thin budgets and they primarily are funded through donations and generosity. And so if if you, you have the heart to give with that, man, I encourage you to do that. And you also have the ability to look at things with a critical mind and say, you need new computers. You can't afford to buy $1,400 Dell workstations, but maybe I can go and contact some of these businesses and ask if they would be willing to donate their old computers because they're on two-year leases. And if that becomes the case, go to places like hotels, go to places like uh, if you have any factories or, or large offices, law offices, medical offices, all of those places are places that they like spending money on technology because right or wrong, they believe that if they buy something every one or two years, it will make their practice run better. And so, better, yeah. right, yeah. And so they they take the old ones, and most of the time they're willing to just give them to you if you just ask, because they're usually sitting in some back storage room until John, the you know the new guy, gets told, "Hey, would you go clear out those computers? They've been sitting back there for five years. Just go throw them in the dumpster." And then they get thrown in the dumpster. So if you, you know, if you go in there and say, "Hey, do you have anything from the last year or so?" Chances are they're all around you. You just gotta ha have the questions. And those those nonprofits, those are the kind of steps, and those are the kind of things that they're not able to do because if they went into an office and said, do you have any old computers? 
most of those people wouldn't be able to identify the difference between a Pentium 4 from 1996 and a, and a Core i5 from last year. They would have no clue, and you would. Um, so it's a major benefit to them if you're willing to do that. Does that answer your question or at least give you a starting point? Yeah, I think it's a good direction. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate the call. 855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Of course, the email is live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard and become a part of the conversation. Jason calls from Massachusetts. Hey, Jason, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hello, Noah. So I had called in for two different reasons. On a previous episode, I had called in and I was having issues getting audio to play out of my Valve Index HMD. Yes. And the egg's sort of in my face at this point. As it turns out, between when the Index had first come out and now the workflow had changed. Originally, you just plugged it in and it appeared as an audio device. Now the way it works on both Linux and Windows, you plug it in, you start Steam VR, and then once Steam VR is started, then it appears as an audio device. Really? And some time between, yes. So that was part of the confusion. And at some point between, you know, when it came out and now they fixed the bugs. So audio just miraculously started working when I tested it again. That's awesome, and thank you so much so, for calling. Let me know that. I appreciate that. There's so few. I always tell people, I'm like, call me back. Let me know how it works out. And I don't think a lot of people just get busy, but I really appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you very much for that appreciation. The second reason I had called in tonight is I am trying to print using a Canon printer under Linux. Now, I have stock Ubuntu installed. And without me even doing anything, it appeared in the printer section um, as one of those driverless printers. But it says beneath it, does not accept jobs. And when I try to print a test page, it just sort of silently fails and nothing comes out of the printer. Now, I've heard things about using the CUPS web UI to add a printer. But when I do that, it gives me the error, unable to copy PPD file. There, so okay. There are a couple different ways you can you can go about solving this problem. None of them are are perfect, but I think you'll be able to get it to work. So let's start with this. So Canon is not is notoriously kind of an unfriendly company, uh, printing with Linux usually. Um, Canon is to the printer world what Epson is to the scanner world. Sometimes they have they make really really high quality products, and every once in a while they kind of throw Linux a bone. And so it kind of works, but then the vast majority of them don't work out of the box, and so it requires a little fiddling. The way, the best way that I found to get Canon printers to work on Linux is there's a PPA that can be added, and it has a uh, just yeah, here it is, Michael Cruz. Uh, yeah, here we go, Michael Cruz uh, Canon printer. So I'll have this in the show notes for you. But there is a PPA, there's a repository you add, and and they have a list for practically. The vast majority of the popular Canon printers, um, you know, in any of the IP series, uh, all of them are there. Uh, and so you just install that. You install the appropriate uh, repo for your printer, and they have a generic one if yours isn't listed, and you can try that. And and that's probably the, the most correct way to get that Canon printer to work. The second thing that I have done with pretty decent success, no matter what the model make of printer is, when you go through the printer installation wizard in Linux, and it goes and asks you, it says, which model printer you have. If you have, and I'm just going to make this up so that we, I don't confuse anybody that has real printers. If you had a Widgets printer 5140, 
and you go through the driver list and you find a widget printer 5140 or 6140 or numbers that are kind of sort of similar, eight out of 10 times, if you choose the similar sounding model number, the printer will work. Now, two out of every 10 times when you go to print the test page, it will print like 50 pages of just random gibberish and it, it doesn't work at all. And then it's kind of a mess. But 80 percent of the time, I'd say that tends to work pretty well for me if I pick a similar style model. So what I would suggest for getting your Canon printer to work is first go to this website um, that I'll link to you in the show notes and check out those repositories. See if your model is listed there or if the generic uh, Canon driver will work. Try that. If that doesn't work, then I would try selecting a similar camera model. As far as the CUPS web UI, I'm not very familiar with that process. I, every time I've managed anything CUPS, it's always been through the CLI because most of the time it's being done on a server that's inside of a school or inside of a large business or something like that. And so I've not really had a lot of chance to play with the web UI, um, but I'll look into it a little bit and see if I can educate myself. All right. Sounds good to me. A little uh, a piece of, and I appreciate the call, a little piece of unsolicited advice that you didn't ask for, I will give to you or anybody else listening. If, you ha if, if you're the kind of person that hasn't bought a printer yet and you're looking for one, um, Nunix in the chat room points out that there's a lot of value in brother printers and they tend to work pretty well on Linux. Um, my personal preference is HP. Uh, HP not only has had a 100% track record. Every HP printer I've ever tried in the history of time back to the HP LaserJet 3 uh, back in 1990-whatever has worked flawlessly out of Linux, most of the time just out of the box. And in the very few exceptions that they don't work out of the box, there is an open-source HP LIP driver that you can download right off of HP's site and run, and it will uh, go through the process, and it'll connect via Wi-Fi, it will connect via direct USB, it will connect over HP's uh, network, protocol called HP Jet Direct. I just find them to be very high quality printers that do a very good job. So if you haven't purchased a printer yet, now Jason is already in the boat of he already purchased one. So that's that's the boat he's in. And I think you'll be able to get it to work. But at, if you're if you're in the market for a printer, I highly recommend taking a look at HP printers. I've been very, very happy with them and they provide excellent support on Linux. 855 450 no, it's 855 450 the email, live at asknoahshow.com. I want to go back to this ransomware discussion. It's called NextCry. It's a Python script compiled in a Linux ELF binary using PyInstaller. And part of it is that Linux servers are now very dominant in, or Linux is very dominant in the server space. Additionally, self-hosting has become has just taken off because people are starting to care about privacy and people are st starting to care about control. And I think there's a certain aspect of people are tired of going from one organization to the other and one service to the other and they just go, screw it. I just want to install it and have it myself. We have done more self-installation, self-hosted installations of C-File and, and NextCloud, more than I care to count. In fact, our team at this very moment is working on drafting notifications to all of our clients that we manage their NextCloud instance to let them know about this specific threat. And what you have to understand about people that self-host, the vast majority of people that listen to this show probably are the kind of people that are actively involved because most of you are either in the IT profession or you do it so much as a hobby that if you ever stepped into the professional world, quite frankly, your professionalism would be indistinguishable from that of a, you know, quote unquote, defined professional. A lot of people that I meet at Linux conferences run their home network better than most enterprises run theirs. So 
I'm not trying to pick on home users by any by any stretch of the imagination, but outside of the audience of this show, there is a group of people that get on the internet and do some quick Googling and say, I want to get started in Linux. That's great. I want to self-host. That's great. And then they self-host, and that's great. The thing that where they fall down on, the thing that they miss, is they don't manage the thing well. They install it, they just leave it out in the open and just assume that it will be fine. And if you're not updating your machine, if you're not paying attention to best security practices, if you're not paying attention to current threats, then this is the kind of thing that bites you. And what terrifies me is I am I'm petrified that as this kind of attack becomes more prolific and people find that it is profitable because you're taking all all these people's data and Nextcloud for most people hosts large volumes of data and, and very important data that's why they wanted to self-host it to begin with I'm afraid that it might start to discredit the stability and security of Linux and it's not that there aren't fixes available for these things in fact the propagation method for this particular malware is unknown, but a user online who goes by the handle AlexPW uh, explained that attackers exploited some vulnerabilities in the Nextcloud server to spread Nextcry. And so on October 24th, Nextcloud had released an urgent alert um, for Nginx that was believed to be the exploit and the issue available to the public. And so Nextcloud admins were recommended to upgrade their PHP packages and the Nginx configuration to the latest version. And if you're doing that, you're going to do everything you can to stay away from these viruses. And of course, then we have to have a conversation about backups. Backups are insanely important for anything you care about. Backups should not it is not a drop-in replacement to say that I have a reliable file system. We talk so much about ZFS and ButterFS and X4 and XFS and all these different file systems because we think that's the way that we keep our data safe, and it's not. A backup, reliable backup method needs to be in place. The data should exist in three places. Backup should be automatic. Backup should be frequent. Backup should be multi-layered. Having a spare USB drive that every once in a while you make a copy of your data onto is not a backup solution. It's, it's, it's a haphazard effort into trying to make yourself feel better when you sleep at night. I store all of my important information on a ZFS cluster because I believe that ZFS is one of the best file systems out there to handle keeping my data available to me. But that has nothing to do with keeping the data safe. That's just keeping the, the data online and available to me. I take hourly snapshots of that data so in case there's an accident, somebody inadvertently clicks on something in the house, I inadvertently do something stupid, I can roll back to a previous snapshot. Then I have a backup that exists on-site that every night backs up the ZFS cluster. And then every week, there's an off-site backup that occurs. And I won't go into the very specifics as for some security reasons as to how I implement all of that, but the backups exist and the data exists in three places, and there's actually some other stuff that goes into that. You have to have a backup solution. Every organization that we work for, we recommend a backup solution, and we will implement that for them, or we will t explain to them how they can implement it themselves. I don't care if you do plug in a a USB drive and just copy your data onto it every night as long as you're doing a backup. Do something. doesn't matter if the system is perfect. Just have something. And there, of course, there are better solutions than others. But if you have a backup solution in place, getting hit with something like this is really not that big of a deal. You take the backup of your config, you reset up the next cloud server, you put the backup of the config on there, you update the server, put your, the backup of your data back on the server, you're all good to go.
So that's what I'd recommend you do. Again, 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Colonel joins from the Northeast. Uh, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, it looks like you're pushing all the buttons right this week. I know, right? For, you know, it's the problem is when I'm off for a week, then I forget how everything works because I'm an idiot and I'm only in here an hour a night <laughs> or an hour a week. But yeah, when I'm in the swing of things, then it's fine. I can get everybody on the air. It's Everything works great. All the music fires. I can hear myself. I think you can hear me. Yep. So um, a few things for your previous caller with the printer issue. Um, I have ran into no end of problems with Ubuntu auto trying to auto configure printers. Oh my gosh! The yes, right. Found, um, and I've actually found that it's an Ubuntu specific issue. Um, I've had uh, multiple printers that I can plug them into Fedora, I can plug them into OpenSUSE, I can plug them into all sorts of other things. No problems. Ubuntu, forget about it. Um, so that might be one thing. The other thing is that if he's having trouble, if he can't find the driver in a Linux format, there is a way via cups to, for most printers, if you download the driver package for Windows, you can decompile that essentially, rip out the driver, and that will work with cups. Awesome. So if he can't, yeah, and it's a royal pain. It's a last resort, but if you know, it's cheaper than buying a new printer. <laughs> I love this. I, I love this. So, thank you so much for calling in. Like in the same episode, even like this is really what it means to be a part of a community, right? And then another thing for the web UI, I've actually used that quite a bit because um, I find that the web UI talks directly to uh, cups, whereas a lot of the configured configuration things the desktop uis will sometimes do wonky things um and so to get that at least on it's been a while but at least back in the day <laughs> um there was a package that you could install that would give you a uh, shortcut in your menu that would pull up the web ui um and i don't remember the name of it off the top of my head but <laughs> If you just go into like Synaptic and you search for you know Cups Web UI, it should pop up. Awesome. Well, so that I, would be another option to try. I, to get I appreciate that. I do want to underscore one of the things that you say, and I, I thank you so much for the call. One, you know, when you talk about print Ubuntu screwing up printers by automatically adding them, I have an HP. I think it's like a thirty fifteen something like that LaserJet at my house. And every time I install a computer, it pops up in there. It has the right model name. It has everything is right there. It just looks like it should work. And when you print, like the first like seven, eight, ten times I print to it, works just fine. And then all of a sudden, randomly, for no reason whatsoever, it will just stop working. Now, if I manually delete that printer and add it using, you know, and type in the IP address and all that other stuff, if I do all of that, the printer works indefinitely forever. Why that auto discovery thing doesn't work, I have no idea. But man, if I had a dime for every time Ubuntu has automatically installed a printer and then screwed the thing up, I'd be a rich man. 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. John, Wisconsin. You're on the air. Good, good uh, evening. Uh, good evening. How you doing, Noah? I'm doing great. Awesome. Um, so I have a question. Um, my uh, parents recently uh, just got a, uh, a lake place at one of those, you know, northern Minnesota, like, resorts where they have, um, you know, they've got about 20 trailers there. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, two to three acre spot. Um, and, uh, my dad and I kind of want to go to the, like the, the board there for their resort and propose like a, a plan for getting Wi-Fi up there. Cause right now, I mean, the cell service is, uh, you know, abysmal at best. And, uh, I believe there's, um, at least one ISP up there that's actually, actually has a wire running, you know, wouldn't be a wisp. Um, but my question is, um, what kind of, uh, like, I don't know if there's one access point that can handle, um, you know, between 40 to 60 users, probably not quite that much because they're all about 55 or older. Um, but, you know, as like more young people come in, we're kind of hoping, you know, I don't know if there's one access point that could handle that or if, you know, we do multiple. Uh, the only real issue that I could see is like there's only one high spot in the property. Um, it's, a, it's a light pole um, and it's also like fairly heavily wooded. So I don't know if there's only if we could put one access point there or if we would like want to like put them in, you know, mount them trees. Otherwise, <laughs> would be like the only option. So I don't know if you have any good uh, recommendations for that. Yeah, I, I have used I, I'll tell you what where I'll tell you where I have used these and they worked really well. We had a car dealership and the, the, the situation at the car dealership was this. They had a, a, a really great network on the inside, which we managed, but the newer vehicles on, and I, I'm probably going to screw up the car terminology, so car people, please don't kill me. I, I, I just did it and pray when I turn the key, it works. But the, the, the newer cars that are diesel engines have some sort of system in them that has to be serviced every so often. And as part of that servicing uh, protocol, there is a special piece of equipment that must be connected to the system, and then it talks to a computer, and it does some special things that apparently you have to do with a diesel engine, and then it works. Um, I don't understand any of that, but what I do understand is that the laptop that they use to program and this little handheld device that connects needs Wi-Fi. And the obviously these diesel engines are very large, and so it was very difficult for them to pull it into uh, their, act, their, their usual shop. So they asked, is there any way to get network access, Wi-Fi network access, reliable Wi-Fi network access outside? By the way, if this thing ever goes down, it screws up our entire uh, update protocol thing because then the system breaks and we have to blah, 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 and it's a real big deal, so it has to work 100% of the time. I said, no problem. And we use the Unified Mesh UAP ACM, and they are, they are, they're, they're essentially the UAP. AC pros, except they're in a water, uh, weather waterproof enclosure. They've got gaskets all the way around for all the cables to come out. It has a seal design up on top so no water can leak in. Um, you mount them and those things go like crazy. Oh, we put one of those outside the shop. I was a half a mile away and I could still see the network. Um, was not particularly reliable at that point, but it were you know it was there uh so if you're trying to get into a small park and you can go into the center and by the way no issues whatsoever going to a tree the only thing i would tell you is don't screw into the tree or you'll you, you could damage or hurt the tree but if you use like a strap and and come around the tree and mount to that um i've done that with outdoor speakers before works great um the other thing i've done is you can put uh, just a it's, it's it depends on how much you care about aesthetics but we have done uh, outdoor events for like uh, like uh, where they have like bands come out and play and and they have little uh, stuff set up for kids for public events and 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 so on and so forth. And we've come out and provide the Wi-Fi. And the way we've done that is we'll just go to uh, to a Lowe's or a Home Depot and buy like a, one of those five gallon buckets and fill it with quickcrete and take some galvanized pipe and put a T end at the end of the galvanized pipe and sink it into the into the uh, quickcrete. Let it dry and you have a 
you have a, a nice solid base to mount an access point and you can go set that thing wherever. And uh, what we've done in some of the places where they're more permanent installations of sorts, you know, the pole's probably, I don't know, maybe 10 feet high. We'll just dig a little hole and set the entire thing of concrete in the hole and then put the dirt back over it. And now we have uh, a galvanized pipe that comes out that we can mount stuff to. Um, we've put access points on those before. Sure. Those work pretty well. And, you know, if you don't bury them, then they're easy to take back up if, if you're if you're mobile. So, yeah, no, I uh, I I think there's a, there's great options for getting outdoor uh, access points. By the way, XMN in the chat room says that if the the, the strap two could cut into the tree long term. So I, I guess be a little cautious of that. But I'm, I'm no tree expert. Uh I guess I, I've not run into that myself, but I, I, I would I would advise you to talk to somebody who knows more about trees than me if you get down that road. Um, but yeah, trenching. A, and if you by the way, if you're going to go out to a tree or you're going to go out to a light post, or you're going to go out to some side building, use tough cable. Ubiquity makes a special kind of cable called tough cable. It's essentially cat five. But the difference is, first of all, it has a much harder insulation on the outside to resist weather and animals and, and water and all those kinds of things. The other thing it does is it has a copper ground wire inside of the inside of the Cat5 itself. And you can term and the special ubiquity ends have a little place to stick that little ground wire that you can crimp it down on. And the idea is it, if there's any spurious electricity, it will send it down that ground wire and all of the switches that are connected to it will shunt that electricity rather than get damaged by it. Um, and so anytime you're mounting anything outdoors, especially if it's going to have any height to it, I'd recommend using uh, tough cable. It's not that much more expensive than regular cable. Um, you do need special ends, but they're not that much more. And you can use a standard Cat5 crimper to, uh, to crimp them down. Sure. That, uh, that seems like a decent plan. Yeah, they have a, a like a permanent installation about, uh, I don't know, 50 or maybe 75 feet away um, where the internet would probably be coming in. So uh, I'd probably just be wired up from there, I, can, I imagine. Nailer in the chat room says to make sure to drain the line to dissipate static uh, dis, uh, uh, buildup. And I, I think what he's saying is just... Uh, is just touch that, you know, make sure to ground that, that copper out and shunt the electricity before you start plugging it into to electronics. Um, but yeah, no, they, they those access points have worked really well. That one that I have at that car dealership has been in, in production for year, a little over a year, maybe two years. I don't know, for a while. And it's been it's been very good. And he says, no, the copper line is, a he's talking about a drain. Um, so yeah, I guess if there's water in there, make sure to uh, to drain it. But does that answer your question? Um, yeah, yeah, I think it does. Um, I'll, uh, you know, take a look and see about getting a plan. Uh, hopefully not too much, as I know a lot of these people are fairly, uh, um, you know, they're, they're retired fisher people for the most part. So Yeah, I don't think uh, they're too expensive. Yeah, I, I think they're, do. I, I think they're like 200 bucks an access point, if that gives you some idea. So they're they're not they're not a, like I say it's it's essentially the same thing as the Ubiquity UAPAC Pro, and I think those are hundred and forty dollars. So this has a couple extra bells and whistles on it. Um, it also has some mesh technology stuff that I've not really used. I just adopted to a controller and use it as a regular access point. But um, that's if I was going to put one outdoors, that's definitely what I would do. And in, I'm in the process of remodeling the inside of my house. But when I get to remodeling the outside of my house, I will absolutely have one of those. Uh, in my backyard so I can access uh, assuming that Unify doesn't do any more stupid things like backdoor my network uh, just go ahead and throw that out there 855-450-NOAH that's 1-855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com great questions tonight Brave it's a browser from Brendan Eek 
I'm probably pronouncing his last name wrong. He's one of the co-founders of Mozilla. Now, this is a privacy-focused web browser that has reached version 1.1, or 1.0, excuse me. It's available for Windows, Mac OS, Linux, iOS, and Android. Now, Brave, on the surface, is nothing particularly special. It's an open-source web browser based on uh, Google Chrome. So, essentially, it's Microsoft Edge. Just kidding. But where Brave starts to set itself apart is in the way that it handles tracking. By default, it blocks ads, trackers, and cross-site cookies. Now, this feature they call Shields. And there's an icon in the toolbar that tells you how many items have been blocked. And typically, you'll see numbers in the 30s to 40s. Now, if the site is what they describe as being well-behaved, or if you want to allow ads to be displayed, or if it's so badly behaved that you simply can't get your work done with Shields on, and you're desperate to see their content, then you can go ahead and disable Shields by clicking on the icon. Brave aims to be an alternative way to fund web publishers. Here is the problem. Content started back, you know, hundreds of years ago where somebody would write something down on a piece of paper, and then they would sell that piece of paper to as many people that were willing to buy a copy of the piece of paper to read what's on the piece of paper. And then we got to things like cable TV, in which people paid money to consume content over their TVs. And then we had things like SiriusXM Radio, where people consumed to, paid to consume audio content. The internet posed an interesting challenge. Everybody had access to the internet for free or they paid their ISP and assumed that everything after the, they paid their ISP should be free. And slowly, one by one, journal companies and magazine companies and newspapers and television shows, they all went away or they adopted to make their content online. But a problem existed. There's no way to fund that. There's no way to make money. So they did what anybody would do if you were creating content and wanted to be paid for it. Hey, if you want to read the content, you'll just have to pay us. And so they put paywalls up. Well, not just the open source community, humanity at large re just totally rejected that. I'm not paying to get into your stupid site. I should be able to see that content for free. If you're not going to charge me, I'll just go somewhere else. And people did. And where did people go? Facebook, Yahoo, uh, Twitter. So they went to social media in where people would share their own versions of either free news stories or in uh, or irreputable news stories um, that were, uh, you know, of poor content, had poor quality, had poor writing oftentimes, and frequently um, were not accurate. And that has led to a problem on the Internet. And so what Brave is trying to do is offer an alternative funding method for people who want to publish content online. And they're doing that with what they're calling the BAT system or the basic attention token. Now the basic attention token or the BAT system is in effect a cryptocurrency. You can opt into Brave Rewards, which means that you'll see ads in the browser. By default, you'll see two per hour. These ads will be published by Brave rather than the sites that you visit, which also means that you're going to get a consistent experience. One of the things that drives me nuts is not necessarily the ads. If we had ads around the browser, around the content I'm looking at, fine, knock yourself out. I'm not going to look at them, but knock yourself out. 
what I can't stand is when I go to a site and I get it takes over the site and interrupts where I'm reading and redirects everything and puts this big pop-up thing in front of me that I, I'm trying to click out of or close and then they hide the close button so you can't really get to it and it's, you know save 15% off your next order of you know pistachio nuts and I'm like I don't want pistachio nuts I just want to be able to read what's on the, that kind of stuff drives me nuts right and it's because it's not consistent I have to I have to stop what I'm doing find where the close button is. If I can't find the close button, I have to use, you know, nuke anything or some other extension to get the thing off my screen so I can go back to what I was doing. And if my choice was between doing that or paying the the website, you know, three cents or something, I'd just pay the website three cents. I'd be thrilled to do that. I want to see the content. I'm not signing up for $19 a month to read one article. I'm not creating an account. I'm not putting in my banking details. But if there was some automatic way that a couple of pennies could go to the site and I can read their content, which I'm interested in. Yeah, I would totally do that. So this is creates a system in which you can do that. The ads are published by brave and the ads earn bats or again, the basic attention tokens, and you can spend bats by donating them to websites that you either like or frequent, you know, frequently or, websites that you think have been very respectful of trying to do ads carefully. Currently 300,000 sites are registered uh, and via an auto contribute feature, you can use them as you wish. Now bat is built on the Ethereum platform and a token currently trades for around 25 cents. That's a pretty reasonable rate. I will pay a quarter to visit a website if the, if the content is valuable. And as a, talk radio host who does show prep, I frequently find myself on news sites that have paywalls. If I could pay 25 cents to see an article, I would do that all day long. In fact, tie that to my bank account. Please take my money, but stop with these injecting ads. Now, here's the here's here's one of the issues that as this came out, it's not being very well received. People on Reddit are furious. People on the 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 um, I think I got this off of uh, the register. People in the comment section there are furious. You do a quick Google search of the Brave browser. That's not a privacy-respecting browser. It's a way for them to make a bunch of money on ads. This is not ethical, blah, blah, blah. And even in our own chat room, we have people who are saying, hey, this is, you know, this oversimplifies the ads. And of course, it is to a certain degree because the, I mean, we're, I'm trying to condense 25 years of, of economics and web development down into 15 seconds to get it tangentially related to the story. But the point is, Web publishers need a way to make money. This is a way for web publishers to make money. And there are only three options as I see them. Either they can charge directly and you can pay the site for to see their content. You can pay with your privacy and they'll let you view the content for, and I use my air finger quotes here, for free. But then they're going to sell your information and use that information to generate revenue. Or you can come with a third-party system like BATS in which... I buy tokens and I will give the tokens to sites that ask for them if I want to pay for them. That seems like a good system. And I don't quite understand why this is not being very well received. If this was made by some no-name guy, might kind of understand it. But this is made by the co-founder of Mozilla. If this was based on some like random cryptocurrency, you know, anywhere, I could kind of understand it. It sounds like they're trying to base it on open protocols, albeit modified for their use. We all want content on the internet and we all complain about paywalls. We all complain about ads. We all complain about privacy violations. So this seems like a really healthy alternative to me, a way in which you can pay for sites at will 
Now, we've realized that we've been paying with content with our privacy for a long time. We've asked companies to do something about it. We've demanded companies to do something about it. There are sites that, you know, we won't visit unless we can use them with Adblock Plus on. People pay money to Adblock just to be able to block site ads. I mean, we're desperate to get rid of ads and we're desperate to keep our privacy. So why is the entire Internet against this concept? Why does the entire Internet not want people who make content to make money. If you write a good article, you should be paid for it. I believe that. If I do a good podcast, I should be paid. I don't want to be paid for it because I just, I like doing it. It's just fun for me, but I deserve to be paid for that because it, it, it adds value to the community. And so as we as the open source community should want to support these people, should want to support the sites that we're visiting. And we shouldn't have any tolerance for sites that demand obscene, obscene amounts of money, you know, $20 for a monthly subscription so I can view one article, you know, Go pound sand. I'm not I'm not talking about you, but to anybody who wants to actually be respectful and ask a reasonable rate of reimbursement, not some trickery thing where you get signed up to some monthly thing that you can't cancel. I really think this is a good thing. This is a way for users to put their money where their mouth is. If you really want to own your privacy, if you really want to own your data and you still want access to that content and you want that content to be relatively decent, then you pay for it. And, I, you know, I wish that this was a more generic service, if I'm being honest. I wish that there, the, I wish instead of an entire separate browser, I wish this was an extension that I could just add to Firefox. I wish it was an extension that could be added to Chrome. I wish this was a third party service, you know, third party ad service that worked with major websites to integrate ads in exchange for payment, direct payment. I think that would be really great, but, but that's not what we're, that's not where they're starting. And so that's not where this is. And but this is a start and rather the practice of blocking everybody else's ads and inserting your own is ethical or not. And there's a lot of discussion about that. I'm not really in a place to determine yet. I would say that in absence of a better alternative, I would argue, no, I don't think that it's immoral to block a, a site's ad and, and insert your own. At the end of the day, you are paying if the site has to register and you are paying the site, you know, to it's you're just your streamlining the ad process and if there was some central ad agency that was doing this and they were able to use that then i would think it's a little unethical i'll just i want to show the ads i want to show on my site and if you want to you can either look at the ads or you can pay me to not look at the ads but either way there should be some sort of process in place the other thing this browser does and this i think is really cool and why i don't understand why people are saying that this isn't a privacy focused web browser because i'm not sure why you would have these features if it's not a privacy-focused web browser. It includes the ability to access the Tor network via a private tab. How cool is that? Do you know how many people I meet in a given week that go, how do I get onto the dark web? And of course, it's usually some stupid reason they just want to feel cool. But the reality is that a lot of people don't know how to install Tor and get it up and running. How cool is that that you can do it just in a private tab? It'll automatically upgrade HTTP sessions to HTTPS where possible. And there's also support for IPFS. If you don't know what IPFS is, it's a project to decentralize the web and in content in a, in a, in a kind of a similar way that BitTorrent uses peer-to-peer -peer connections. So this is really cool. They're using existing open source technologies and up-and-coming open source technologies and open web technologies to try to better the web. I think this is a great thing and I think we should support it. Nunix in the chat room says there's no guarantee of this at all. We already had a system uh, via Dwala. It will probably eventually be a plugin that has taken off. Um, it's immoral to insert your own ads because ads are evil. Ads are 
and and then the chat room is going to go back and forth about whether or not ads are evil. But the the reality is, again, if I was given a third option, I would agree with you. I just don't feel like I have a third option right now, and I feel like that's what these guys are trying to do. So I support it. I'd invite you to check it out, at least see if it's for you. If not, or send me an email at live at asknoahshow.com and tell me why I'm wrong. I think this is pretty cool. Project Spotlight this week is something called Netris. This is awesome. I spend so much of my day uh, inside of an SSH terminal working on servers. And you know what I hate? I hate sitting waiting for progress bars with nothing to do. Well, that problem has been solved this week because with Netris, you can SSH to netris.rocket9.space and you can play a version of Tetris right in your SSH terminal shell. How cool is that? Netris.rocket9.space just SSH into it, and you can start a game and start playing. I've done that a couple of times this week. It's actually really awesome. Our feedback this week comes from Steve S. Steve writes in and says, You often sing the praises of the Western Digital Red for NAS drives. I'm wondering if you have a recommendation for an enterprise-grade SSD for use on a SAN. I'm looking for a 12 gigabytes per second, maybe as big as 1.1 to 2 terabytes. This SAN is used for storing VM images. Well, I will tell you what I use, Steve. I did, this was probably now six, seven years ago. I was uh, part of a group that was, uh, that we were testing SSDs. I wasn't doing the testing. They were doing the testing. I was involved in a different aspect. But uh, the the tests that they did showed that the best performance and reliability came from the, the enterprise SSDs cr uh, made by Intel. Do you know what the second, and they were expensive. They're, you know, six $700 at the time. Do you know what came in second place? At the time, the Samsung 840 Pro, not the, not the uh, Evo, the Pro, had the uh, almost identical speed, almost identical reliability, except the 840 Pro was like $200 instead of like $600. So all of my servers, if they're important and they need an SSD, run the, uh, the, uh, the we're up to the 950 now, Pro from Samsung, and if it's an NVMe drive, they make a 950 Pro NVMe. The Evos have taken off, and maybe they're great drives, maybe they're not. They certainly did not have the same performance uh, and reliability as the 850 or 840 Pro did uh, five, six years ago. And again, that's not like any you know, renowned research paper. That's no one as Band of Lunatics did some testing for a different project, and that's kind of the information we came out with. But I have never had an 840, an 850. Uh, now we're up to a 9-whatever, 70. I've never had one of those drives fail. They've been remarkably reliable, and they've been put onto some very heavy workload. So I'd invite you to check it out. Alan writes in and says, Noah, any ideas? Much appreciated. Any guidance? I love the show. I listen as often as I can. I've been a, big, a bit of a quasi-power Windows and Linux user for a long time. I'm nearly an expert level in Windows and Linux dual boot uh, capable. For the life of me, I can't quite figure out how to get some Linux distributions to play nice in the dual boot environment, yet others, no matter what, how carefully I set everything up, CentOS and even sometimes Fedora blow away the master boot record. Windows is still there. If I just go back and install a well-behaved Linux distro like KDE, Neon, Ubuntu, and a few others, I have successful if LVM, I have, I'm less successful if LVM exists. Any suggestions? Keep up the great work. My suggestion to you is rely on the auto installer. When you install, I, I've always told people when they, if, if you're going to dual boot a machine, install Windows first. And then after you've installed Windows, then go to install Linux and choose the option that says shrink the hard drive and install Linux. I've never had that fail. I've never had that fail on Fedora. I've never had it fail on Ubuntu. I've never had it fail on Arch. That seems to work for me every single time. In fact, just last week, I actually was 
talking with a uh, with a with a guest who called in and asked a similar question about dual booting. And what I told him was, if you can't get it to work, find a well-behaved Linux uh, distro and use that to fix your 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 um your bootloader. And of course, there are third-party bootloaders that you can use if you if you really want to dig in and play. And of course, if you you know, dig into Grub, then you can learn how to fix that properly as well, which is probably the the correct answer. But I'm lazy and I don't do those things, so I won't recommend that you do. Uh, I would suggest just either installing a well-behaved Linux distro or choosing that auto option. If that doesn't work, then let me know because I just haven't had that fail, and I'd just be interested if it did. Every week when we do this show, we have way more articles than we have time to reference, and I take all of those articles and I add them to the show notes. You can get those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find everything we used on this show, plus all the stuff we didn't use this show. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener. This hour of the show may be over. There's plenty more content for you 24-7 at asknoahshow.com. We'll see you next Tuesday, 6 p.m.